morning. Welcome to Rising. Happy Thursday. We've got another great show for you today. Jessica and I were just discussing her Dungeons and Dragons character alignment. Yes. You didn't really know what that meant. Right. Uh, neither did my producers, but uh, I did a whole information session. Yes, we discussed uh, how, how the show here doesn't have a particular political bent altogether, but perhaps a, a moral alignment. Right, a little chaos, a little neutral, a little... No, we, we, we won't go there, you've heard enough. <laughs> um, anyway, we have a great show to get to today. We have an interview actually with Senator Rand Paul that was fantastic. You're going to definitely want to check that out, but let's get to the news. Take it away, Jessica. Yeah, Robbie, I really just want to make sure that our more elder leaders in Congress are okay. We talk a lot about the concern around President Biden and his cognitive state and Senator Dianne Feinstein. But yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell seemed to freeze during a press conference, abruptly pausing mid-sentence and was silent for several seconds. Let's take a look. After finishing the NDA, uh this week has been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of uh Anything else you want to say? I'm sure let's go back to your office. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say anything else to the press? Go ahead, John. Let's go back to you. Go ahead, John. So this is the, uh, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the IRA. And, um, of course, uh, According to NBC, McConnell apparently suffered a previously undisclosed fall at Reagan National Airport on July 14th. Journalist Glenn Greenwald reacted to the incident, calling into question the aging lawmaker's tweeting, quote, the top leadership of the U.S. government is extremely old. They stay around forever, clinging to power as tightly as they can, petrified to give it up. And so we have more and more upsetting scenes like this one. Best wishes to Senator McConnell's health. But this is gerontocracy, and I, I think that's fair to point out. Obviously, wish the best for Senator McConnell. Um, good to see that he was, you know, he seemed fine later. Um, don't know specifically what it was. I mean, it's it's very hot in D.C. right now this summer. Yeah. Um, you know, people can get dehydrated, disoriented. It can happen to people of all ages. But we just can't ignore the fact that this is the oldest Congress in American history. The age of our senators is particular, particularly alarmingly old. The average age has gotten older over time as mm -hmm. there are just more there's more entrenchment, there are more mechanisms by which powerful political figures can stay in office, like, literally forever. This is not a Democratic or Republican issue, because there are lawmakers in both parties who are, who are very old. And look, I, I gotta say, like, this is becoming a big worry. These are important issues that, um, that Minority Leader McConnell and President Biden and Dianne Feinstein and—, and Chuck Grassley is also very, very old. A lot of our, some of our Supreme Court justices are quite old. Um, also, there's a lot of 
you know, tech issues, important issues that I think are don't necessarily play to the, as we all know from, you know, dealing with our own parents and grandparents, and, and we'll be in that position of one day too, uh, where like an, the intuitive grasp of technology is so much easier for younger people. Uh, I just, I, like, I do worry that this is not healthy for a, for a, you know, competent free society in their government. Right. There's several things going on here. Uh, and it's not just that we have the oldest Congress ever because medical technology has advanced and suddenly people can yeah. work into their old age and, yeah. and keep their good health. It is the case that if you take care of yourself and, you know, you make sure you're healthy, we have increased, you know, your quality of life health-wise and the longevity of a human life. That's great. That's not really what we're seeing here. We're seeing uh, members of Congress exhibiting obvious cognitive decline. And even Joe Biden as well, someone in the highest office politically in the United States. And that's a concern, right? The cognitive decline. Then you also have, will these members of Congress and people serving the general public in the United States be alive to see the effects of the legislation that they pass? That's a, a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, are they acting in their own self-interest and perhaps against the self-interest of the general public in America? That's a concern. Then you have this other concern of, do they understand the legislation that they're tasked with analyzing, amending, and passing? And I think Senator Blumenthal demonstrated quite hilariously that absolutely not, uh, asking you know folks at Meta, do you commit to ending Finsta? It was one of the most hilarious moments yeah. in American politics, but so concerning that these are the folks tasked with addressing AI development and how that will be regulated, addressing just how computing power is used by America's biggest corporations. Can they even comprehend the power of the monopoly that Alphabet has when it comes to data? That's really concerning. I think people like making light of these things because they're so scary. And some folks uh, actually theorize that, you know, the, the alien UAP situation is not unrelated from the McConnell situation. Someone posted uh, this to Twitter. I think it's hilarious. Uh, it was a little alien inside of Mitch McConnell's head. <laughs> and that that is what happened. Oh, that's the uh, the men in this, black. This this explains the pause. The alien all had right, a moment. All right, all right. Um, <laughs> ha ha. No, it's it, no, it's fine. I love it. it. I mean, Mitch McConnell has a sense of humor about himself. Clearly, you know, yes. all the cocaine, Mitch stuff, the turtle yeah. stuff, the the him looking at the camera, the camera zooming in thing. Yeah. Uh, which which you know I, I appreciate. And this really isn't about any one specific figure, but. A lot of our European peer countries yeah. don't have situations where aging leaders stay in power forever. They have stronger parties and mm -hmm. people actually are forced to retire. We don't have that because so many of these figures are not, are, are democratically accountable in only the loosest sense because of partisanship and gerrymandering and all that kind of stuff. You don't, you don't have anyone taking on these powerful people. Also, they have you know they have war chests. They have Mitch McConnell is himself like yeah. you know the fundraiser for 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 people running for Senate. If you're running for Senate, you have to court Mitch McConnell. If you want you know if you want to want run in a Republican primary and then a general, you need his help and support because he has he has control of the purse strings. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's again and that's true. That was true for Nancy Pelosi. That's true for party leaders. They are so strong. And they do not retire. They 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 don't. They they I mean, you know, past past their point. Like, uh, you know, we had Fauci in office for like forty years. That's not you know democratic accountability at all because you can't couldn't vote him out. But um, but I think this is a national security problem that yeah. the people making these decisions are just are so old, and we're we're seeing evidence, as you said, of real 
cognitive decline, not just physical impairments, which are, you know, whatever. It's, if it's, if they're still all mentally there and, you know, they need help getting around, I guess that's not the end of the world. But these are demanding jobs. These are stressful jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, look at, look at historical pictures of presidents and how they age, you know, over the time period. George Bush and Barack Obama looked 20 years older after they left office. Donald Trump somehow looks exactly the same. But, but most other presidents look, uh, look like it, they age. It takes a toll on, on your health, on your mental faculties. And these are these are people who are already up there, who are again the age of our of our parents, grandparents, and great grandparents, and it just see, at some point it, it seems like elder abuse. Yeah, yeah, it does. I don't know if the answer is going to be the cognitive test that Nikki Haley's proposing, term limits, expecting the American people to vote them out. I think gerrymandering gets in the way of that. So yeah. you know, let's hope uh, Mitch McConnell is right and that he is fine. Yeah. More rising after this. Breaking news from Trump world this morning. Two sources with direct knowledge of the situation have told NBC News that the former president's attorneys are meeting with prosecutors in the special counsel's office in Washington, D.C. today and have been told to expect an indictment against Trump related to January 6th and the 2020 election. And apparently that indictment could come as soon as today. Here's MSNBC on the matter. Let's watch. Well, Jose, we're able to report now from two sources with direct knowledge of the situation that two of Donald Trump's attorneys have just been meeting with uh, the special counsel here in the office building behind me. We saw a very similar meeting a few days before the announcement in the classified or the announcement of an indictment in the classified documents case uh, came through. As uh, Tom and others have outlined, this is the kind of thing that you would typically see with attorneys coming in to try to do sort of a last minute negotiation, convince prosecutors not to make charges against against their client. We don't know uh, the specifics of this meeting here, but it was widely reported that these attorneys were seen arriving here shortly around, around 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, we believe, we believe we just saw them depart about 11 o'clock uh, today after what we know was a meeting with the special counsel's office uh, to discuss the possibility, the strong possibility of an indictment of their client later today. It's our understanding that these lawyers have been told, have been told to expect an indictment against former President Trump related to this investi uh, elections investigation, uh, possibly as soon as today. Jose? So this was expected, obviously. Uh, they're, you know, proceeding with uh, an indictment relating to, so all we know is relating to January 6th and the 2020 election. That leaves a lot of uh, potential areas for this to be about. My concern is that, you know, specifically trying to tie Donald Trump to the riot, to the trespassing at the Capitol, you know, that's something the January 6th Commission tried very hard to do. It's something that ultimately was already kind of decided at the, you know, the level of, I mean, Trump was impeached by the House. The Senate voted whether to remove him from office. They declined to do so. And I have a—look, no one, no one should be above the law, and if he committed crimes, he should be indicted for them. He should be— prosecuted for them, et cetera. I, you know, I have no personal loyalty or even like remaining affection for Donald Trump on mm -hmm. the election stuff specifically. And so if they have new information, that's fine. And I think we have a lot of questions about his activity immediately after the election and, the, you know, the, the Georgia conversation, you right. know, the, the things he did that, um, that were, you know, wildly inaccurate and fraudulent. But he was—he he was—, um, he, he was this was decided, this was looked at by the Senate. I think the appropriate mechanism for his, his 
conduct unbecoming of his office was the impeachment proceeding. And I'm sorry, he, he was, they lost. He, he was retained in office. You had some Republicans even voting for it, but not enough. And that's kind of that. I don't believe, I, I've not been persuaded that he was part of a conspiracy on January 6th to cause that to happen. I'm, I'm skeptical even of the charges they brought for conspiracy charges against some of the Proud Boy leaders, all that. It was his. Did his words contribute to to the riot? I think absolutely. In a in a legal and a criminal way, no. So I'm sort of wary of them going down this road yet again. That said, we obviously we have to wait for what evidence they had. It turned out in the boxes case, the documents case, Mar-a-Lago, the evidence they had was uh, actually much stronger than may, maybe people naively believed initially. So we'll have to wait. But um, I, I think the worst thing you could do is have you know yet another witch hunt against Donald Trump. Yeah, I think what we could see happen is some kind of a charge for him spreading this idea among his base at the rally just beforehand that what's going on in Congress is they're attempting to steal an election. I think yeah. honestly. But wouldn't that be a bad? Like, wouldn't that be a charge for speech? I mean, it can be. It's bad speech, not denying mm -hmm. the things he said were inaccurate, but. Your your First Amendment right mm -hmm. to say really bad, just like Senator Rand Paul was saying in our interview earlier today, your First Amendment right to say really bad stuff is is extremely robust. It crosses a line when you're calling for like imminent violence in a very you know against a specific person or place and in a you know time place manner kind of thing. Then it it can violate the First Amendment. But I I don't I, I I'm not at all persuaded that what Donald Trump said rises to that level. Yeah, I think uh, his failure to call the National Guard on the day of January 6th is quite interesting. The way that the Secret Service uh, exclaimed that they were, you know, pretty aware of what was going on on January 6th suggests that what was going on internally in the Trump administration might be more closer to planning January 6th than we are able to know. What came out in the January 6th committee hearing was pretty damning for Donald Trump. The things that he was saying behind the scenes that, you know, members of the Secret Service knew about, the way that so many text messages just directly after January 6th were deleted by Secret Service agents that were close to Trump and in his detail that day is also very concerning and quite damning. But I really do think that where the most evidence is and where we're most likely to get a really solid indictment on Donald Trump is in Georgia, where DA mm -hmm. Fannie Willis has really done quite a good job gathering evidence, uh, assembling a grand jury. And it, it seems that what's happened in Georgia is that the fake electors have kind of told on each other, right? Uh, they've entered in some kind of deal with the DA's office and, and given names uh, and, and given details about what their plans were. That's pretty damning. The find me an 11,000 votes conversation is quite damning. So I think really where we're going to see something happen here as it pertains to the election and Donald Trump's actions in the days after is in Georgia, in Fulton County. Yeah. I mean, again, damning, the things he said, the text message, everything, damning of his moral fiber. But is it damning in a liable, criminal sort of way? That's what I've, I've not been persuaded on, on a lot of this January 6th specific stuff. Now, again, maybe this is more focused on election behavior. We just, we don't know at this point, and we'll probably be learning like any minute, I think, from, from, 
from what I understand. But of course, the you know the I think the political implication of all this is going to be very clear. It's this is you know we've yeah. seen how Republicans, how even even the people running against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination for president, we've seen how they're handling all this. They're handling all this by defending him. Not not all of them, but his main rivals, DeSantis, um, you know Christie going going hard on him. Uh, but Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, less so, Pence somewhere in the middle. Um, they're definitely not taking the, uh, again, with the exception of Christie, they're not taking the position that Donald Trump's, the fact that Donald Trump is a target of these investigations means he should not be president again. In, in fact, they're, they're saying that this is, this is another reason to oppose democratic mm -hmm. rule is that they've weaponized the federal government against Republicans. So this is going to play right into the hands of what Donald Trump and most of his rivals for the nomination are all saying. I think it, it's funny that recently Donald Trump, in posting about all of this, said, you know, January 6th was an inside job done by the government, which could be an admission of guilt because he was the yeah. head of state at that yes. point in time. So I don't know if they'll try and admit that. It was an, an inside job, yes. yes. It goes yes. to the, the highest level of government right. was involved. In fact, the yes. president of the United States. Yes, an inside, January 6th was an inside job done by the government. Yeah. That's an admission of guilt by Donald yeah. Trump, I think. I think he is morally blameworthy, f absolutely, for what happened. Um, but whether you can show, on, again, on January 6th, it was part of some, actually, it crossed the line from First Amendment protected speech, I don't know. Maybe they have more. Maybe it's focused on a different part of the election fallout. Uh, it remains to be seen. We will definitely have more information on that as it comes out and more rising right after this. Senator Rand Paul has teamed up with Representative Jim Jordan to tackle government censorship online by introducing the Free Speech Protection Act, which would prohibit federal employees and contractors from using their positions to censor and otherwise attack speech that is protected by the First Amendment. Senator Paul joins us now to tell us more about this bill. Welcome back to Rising, Senator. Thanks for having me. So, you know, so many people who are understandably frustrated with social media censorship, you know, focus on what Facebook has done wrong, what Twitter has done wrong, what YouTube has done wrong, you know, without getting at the, fun uh, the fundamental underlying issues of how government actors pushed these choices on these companies. Why don't you tell us more about your approach? Well, I think it's important that we examine this because uh, we don't want to react just because we're angry. So I'm unhappy with YouTube because they took down a speech that I made on the floor of the Senate. They've taken down speeches where I've said that the masks don't have a health benefit. But I don't really have a right under the First Amendment to tell YouTube they have to show my speech. I do, however, believe that the government's interaction with YouTube or the government's interaction with Twitter can be regulated. So private entities have the ability to interview me, not interview me, edit me, not put me on there. You know, that is a, a prerogative of the private entity. But I don't believe that the FBI should be meeting with Twitter and saying to Twitter, well, we'd like you to take this information down because we don't like this information. We think it's consistent with your content moderation rules. And Twitter looks at them and says, wow, that'll be a lot of work. Will you pay us? And they said, yeah, we'll give you three million bucks to take <laughs> down this information. And it's like, if that is not an anathema to the First Amendment, I don't know what is. And the First Amendment says Congress shall not do certain things. And so the government, it's a, the First Amendment's about preventing the government from doing things. So I think we have every right, uh, and it's part of our role, to say to the FBI or to Department of Homeland Security, you cannot go meet with people to try to influence constitutionally protected speech. 
And the way I try to get people to think about this is imagine in your newsroom that after this interview, the FBI comes in, they're armed, they don't draw their weapons, they don't threaten you, but they are armed and they sit down with you and they say, well, we're concerned about his response to this and we think it's disinformation, so we'd prefer that you edit that part of the interview out. Can you imagine how offended you would be or how offended most newsrooms anywhere in the country would be? We should have the same sort of degree of offense that the FBI is sitting down in the room every week. They've been meeting every week with Facebook. And what it has led to, Zuckerberg has admitted that the FBI came to him and said, the, the Hunter Biden you know, laptop is a Russian plant and you shouldn't uh, let it be broadcast through Facebook, so downgrade it, and he did but it turned out it is actually true. And so we can't really let the government get into this idea of deciding what is true, what is false, what is misinformation, what is disinformation, but they're heavily invested in this. And I think the country needs to have this debate. The sad thing is the left used to be very good with the First Amendment, but now because they see people on the right they don't like and they don't like their speech, they're actually for going ahead and regulating the speech if it's speech they don't like. So you've said in the past, pretty recently, when folks were discussing the TikTok ban, which would give Congress a lot of power over what is and what is not on the internet, and you said, you know, I don't think we should have Americans relinquish their liberties and be coaxed by fear. We're often told that this kind of censorship is done for the purpose of national security. What would you say to those that are genuinely fearful and that this is necessary for matters of national security? You know, I think uh, bad information, lies, fraud, all of this are better uh, contradicted with more information. I think there's a great danger to letting government decide what is true or untrue. And once you allow that, it's a slippery slope to them getting involved and regulating all opinion. And it used to be not so dangerous before the advent of technology. But now with digital searching and with artificial intelligence, they control through millions of comments to get rid of the comments they don't like. So it's, it's become much more pervasive with that. So yeah, and if you look at most of the First Amendment cases, the constitutional First Amendment cases that have made to the Supreme Court, they're really usually about despicable speech. They're usually nasty, despicable people that have said terrible things that most of us don't like and disagree with, racist, bigotry, all of this stuff. But you'll find that the court defends it because they say that part of the First Amendment is defending even things we, we find despicable because it's easy to defend speech. If I say I love everybody, nobody's gonna censor that. If I say I, I don't like uh, certain things, speech that has to be protected is opinionated speech and, and frankly, sometimes unpopular speech. But you know, when I started speaking out about um, the origins of the virus and the possibility that came from the Wuhan lab, you know, I was uh, seen and taken down as somebody who was uh, marketing in fringe conspiracies. We now know that the actual scientists that began the assault on this theory all believed in private that the virus did originate in the lab. So we have to be very careful about uh, going with consensus or saying that, well, everybody believes this, so we can't let this person who's the odd one out there give his opinion. It's very dangerous for a free country. Yeah, I, I did actually want to quickly get your reaction to those that news we're learning that so many of the people involved in Proximal Origins paper now had private um, uh, concerns that it very much could have been a lab leak. Uh, and obviously, you know, they have the right to change their minds. As, you, as we're discussing, they have free speech rights. But if they misled Congress or, you know, at the direction of Dr. Fauci misled Congress, is there going to be any consequence for that? 
So Fauci meets in early February, February 1st, with a group of prominent uh, virologists from around the world. In private, they all were telling him, we think it came from the lab. It looks like it's been genetically manipulated. It looks like it came from the lab. It's not a fringe theory. It's not a conspiracy theory. We think it's the most likely cause, but we think it'll be damaging to the business of science. We think it'll be damaging to the relations with China. So I bring Fauci before my committee, or he's brought before the committee, and I ask him, did you fund gain-of-function research in Wuhan? He says, absolutely, unequivocally, he never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. Well, now we have an email from him summarizing a phone call from February 1st of 2020. He summarized the phone call by saying, many people are suspicious that this came from the lab because it looks manipulated. We're particularly suspicious because we know in that lab they're doing gain-of-function research. Now, he was trying to wiggle out of this with me by saying, oh, it's not gain of function. Here we have him in private admitting that it's gain of function. He describes the research, and we have now that research in a paper, in a journal, with the uh, grant number from the NIH. So he's dead to rights having lied to Congress. It's a felony to lie to Congress, and he should be prosecuted. I referred him to the attorney general, but I think we have uh, maybe perhaps the most partisan attorney general we've had in our history. And he's not going to do anything about he, he barely even responds. I, I think we don't even get a response when we refer mm. Fauci for a criminal uh, investigation. We get nothing from them. Back on the uh, on your bill for, for just a second. So what is the proper mechanism to actually stop the government officials from, from doing what you described, from putting pressure on social media companies? Is it they're going to be fired if they do that? They're going to be fined? Is it just, well, they do that, but then there needs to be automatic you know disclosure of whatever emails they're having, whatever conversations we're having? Because even Judge Dowdy's decision, uh, you know, the decision uh, trying to stop the federal government from doing a lot of that does spell out some exceptions. I think the decision is a great first step. I think the the exceptions he carved out do leave room for the government to still do some of the things you and I both don't like. So, so what is the right approach to this? Ours forbids them with meeting with any kind of legacy or internet media uh, to coerce, direct, uh, collude, any, any kind of sort of uh, influence to try to influence constitutionally protected speech. The reason we describe it that way is uh, the pushback is, well, what about terrorism or what about you know, illegal you know, trafficking, uh, trafficking of children and all these other things that nobody wants to see? Those are illegal, and the government's still allowed to call Facebook and say, hey, some guy's on Facebook doing this really creepy thing that shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be allowed because it's illegal. That is still allowed under our bill. Ours is just constitutionally protected speech. There's a long history of the Supreme Court looking at speech. So, you know, the whole idea that can you yell fire in a crowded movie theater? You're not allowed to. You can't go out and say, I want all of us to gather our guns and go shoot people. If that's an imminent threat, that's, it's illegal to do that. So there's certain things that the government still will be involved with. It just won't be opinions. You're not allowed to get in there and influence opinions. And we do have them fired and fines involved. There has to be a punishment or there's no way to stop it. Now, the interesting thing is the court case, Missouri versus Biden, that you were referring to that just came out, the judge issued an injunction. And the interesting thing for those who say this is no big deal, nothing's happening, the Biden administration immediately canceled meetings between the FBI. The FBI was sitting down with dozens of agents every week with Facebook and with Twitter and all of these different groups. 
And it wasn't to say, oh, well, why don't we go after terrorism and we're afraid that ISIS is organizing. No, it was they were, they were afraid of your opinions on vaccines, afraid of your opinions on masks. Um, it, it's just extraordinary what's going on out there. And uh, I, can, I hope we can get to some bipartisanship on this. And like I say, there used to be Democrats that cared about the First Amendment. They used to be better than Republicans. And now I have trouble finding any. Senator, just switching gears slightly here, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell seemed to, to freeze during a press conference that caused a lot of questions and raised a lot of concerns for people. Later, he said he was fine. Afterwards, uh, have you talked to Senator McConnell at all after that presser? I haven't, but I was on the floor last night. We were voting on amendments at about uh, somewhere between 8 and 10 o'clock Eastern time. And he was there and appeared to be having conversations with people on the floor. I was busy because I was uh, introducing an amendment and working on some projects. So I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but uh, I didn't see anything out of the ordinary on the floor last night. Mm. Senator Paul, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's important, Bill. Thank you. intelligence official David Grush made explosive claims in yesterday's House Oversight Subcommittee hearing about a possible U.S. government cover-up about contact it had with UFOs, but the classified nature of what he knows prevented him from elaborating or providing evidence to back up his allegations. Congressman Jared Moskowitz told reporters that the committee is planning a workaround where Grush can finally reveal what he knows. Let's watch. I'm going to be sending a letter. Uh, I'm going to be working with uh, uh, members of the Oversight Committee to get Mr. Grush into a skiff. You heard a lot of his answers today that are classified information that he provided to the Inspector General. We want to see that. Uh, and so I think that's the next step here is to get that information in, in, in a secure facility. Grush may have been limited in what he could say publicly, but he and the other two witnesses, former Navy pilots Ryan Graves and David Fravor, delivered more jaw-dropping allegations. Let's listen. The objects that are being seen by commercial pilots are uh, performing maneuvers that are unexplainable due to our current understanding of our technology and our capabilities as a country. And that applies for the military as well. Mr. 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 Fair. Yeah, I concur with that. We have nothing that can stop in midair and go the other direction, nor do we have anything that can, like in our situation, come down from space, hang out for three hours, and go back up. Thank you. My last question, and, so, and sometimes you, I know that some, you have also said some of these answers in the past, but we're trying to get them on the public record as well, which is really important. Mr. Gresh, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And, and, and where? I know the exact locations. Right, and they follow that up by saying, you know, he has all this information, but it's classified and he can't reveal it in that setting. So they're talking about setting up the skiff, that's the secure room where there are no phones, no mm -hmm. cameras, and he could actually provide that information. I mean, that is clearly what needs to happen because uh, everybody wants the truth. Everybody wants, if there's evidence, uh, they, they want to hear it. And we want, we want names named. Who are, what are the agencies? Who are the people who work for them, who are involved in what has been described as a cover-up of the actual recovery of alien or otherworldly, off-world technology and that is beyond the American government's ability to manufacture, and also bodies of, of um, non-human entities that were piloting those crafts. 
Right. So you have David Grush making some really, really big claims here. And we had Tim Burchett go uh, and, and meet with several officials with the Pentagon. And the Pentagon, you know, it was the assumption that they would get briefed, right? Mm -hmm. And then upon arriving there, they were not allowed in the room where the briefing was happening. They were not going to give them the information that they wanted. They refused to answer questions uh, about the whistleblower allegations. And so this is an interesting workaround where you have David Grush, who has conducted, you know, 40 plus interviews over the past four years who might be able to tell them something that the Pentagon is refusing to. But of course, he's saying this is classified information. So it sounds like Grush is a bit concerned uh, about his personal position here. We also had Matt Gates claim that he saw a, a photo uh, of, you know, biologics or something, which kind of sounds like Matt Gates, just like, hey, I want to be involved too. Like you guys <laughs> oh, are talking Jenny, about aliens. Like what about me, guys? Well, you know, if people, I mean, that, you know, speaks to, <laughs> Even people in our, who was the president? Wasn't it Jimmy Carter who said that he believed because he'd seen something? Oh, that sounds right. I think it was that Jimmy right. Carter. We'll ask our producers to yeah, follow up on that. They'll, oh. uh, they're looking into that. I believe it was Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. He so, was out in the peanut fields, you know, just UFOs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're just all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, no, we're, we're, you know, we're taking this, it, this is being taken seriously, which is good. Yes. Because we know the government lacks transparency and we know it's hiding things. Uh, I'm very interested in the response that we don't have technology, you know, crafts that can quickly change direction, uh, what uh, what the witness was describing there. Um, it, my understanding, I was reading this great article in National Review yesterday about prior um, UFO UAP sightings that have been where someone, where a pilot where saw something and then an explanation has been provided for it. And in... Mm -hmm. The majority of those cases, the explanation was it was a it was a U.S. Um, craft. It was something the government created. Yes. Uh, so, given that has previously been the explanation for a lot of things, like if if the government has technology we're not aware of, they wouldn't tell us that's perfectly plausible. Like we're we're talking about how they were funding all sorts of dangerous research experiments in Wuhan, China, in unsafe mm -hmm. lab conditions that they don't want to admit, like even now that they're being forced to, they don't want to admit it. Yeah. So I, I, people need to check and say, well, that's you know, the U.S. government could do that. No, they, they certainly could have technology and could have divined, uh, designed planes that don't uh, resemble what's publicly available. So I, I think people need to not you know, so easily dismiss that explanation and say, no, it must be off-world technology. Right. Could have been Russia, could have been China, could have been another could, could have been you know, technological yeah. superpower. So our producers did say that Jimmy Carter saw a UFO knew in Georgia in 1969. So perhaps they were, you know, courting him for the position of human ambassador to the aliens. But he ran for president, which disqualified him. And they're just waiting mm. for someone like me to come That's along. That's going to be your position. I yes. know you, you're uh, yes. deeply excited for it. You're seeking it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you I you would have like to be confirmed by the Senate, I guess. Perhaps, perhaps I'll have to attend a hearing like this one and promise to, you know, publicly disclose information, it. declassify it. Yes, absolutely. Make it all available. Yeah. Be a good ambassador, you know, yeah. a good liaison between the humans and the aliens. Uh, I think you'd be just terrific. Uh, the issue with the skiff <laughs> is that we're not yes. going to hear what gets said. Right. They're going to hear. And then they're going to bring their concerns, th them, them being, you know, Tim Burchett and yeah. other people. And then hopefully bring their concerns to the relevant agency. Uh, there's got to be legislation to, you know, force these agencies. Again, we're, we're just we're always we're always circling the same problem that there's a component of the government that has taken on a life of its own. The, this administrative state that is totally removed from democratic accountability and is is immune to changes in government composition to one party going in, another coming in, or one going out, another coming in. Mm -hmm. It's the same procedures. It's the same secretive designs and we want that 
changed and unmasked and disclosed. And but so many of our legislators who even talk a good game about doing that, see, like that's all they're doing is talking. Is, is they go on t TV and promise changes and then they don't deliver anything. Yes, but yesterday was a good start. Let's look at so. a, another key moment from yesterday's hearing where retired Commander David Fravor describes this highly advanced technology that he witnessed. Let's watch. In your career, have you ever seen a propulsion system that creates no thermal exhaust? No. Can you describe how the aircraft maneuvered? Uh, abruptly, uh, very determinate. It knew exactly what it was doing. It was aware of our presence, and it had acceleration rates. I mean, it went from zero to matching our speed in no time at all. Now, if the fastest plane on Earth was trying to do these maneuvers that you saw, would it be capable of doing that? No, not even close. And just to confirm, this object had no wings, correct? No wings. I love this hearing. I love this hearing because they're like, can you describe it? And he's like, it was so fast. <laughs> and they're like, how fast? And he's like, really this fast. fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty clear that, you know, as you pointed out, Robbie, there could be this kind of technology that the U.S. government and military has that not everyone who is, you know, a, a commander in the military knows about. That's reasonable. But uh, I would like to believe that it is aliens. <laughs> I'm willing to, I get, I get accused, you know, our viewers um, don't like when I sound dismissive of the alien uh, possibility. I, I am not dismissing it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it is possible, but it is an extraordinary claim. And extraordinary claims require proof. And then, I, and I ask, where's the proof? And then people will say, well, but this person says that he spoke to this person and this person actually saw something. That's not, that doesn't. That's not anything. I want to show show me that I want to see the I want to see the crafts. I want to see the bodies. I want to see that stuff. Then I will believe. Show me something that is actually persuasive, and I would accept it. Is it reasonable to believe, Robbie, that the aliens just don't want to hang out with us because we don't seem like like great guys to hang we out? We don't seem with. like a cool planet. Yeah, we don't seem Story like. Story my life. I don't know. We're nice people. We just shoot guns for fun and kill people and start wars with each other. And they're like. Ah. Well, you think they're if so I innocent? I interact with these people. What? You think they're so innocent? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, clashes. The closest thing we have, if we were actually being visited by an alien um, civilization, yes. I just worry it will go the way clashes of civilization on Earth went, which mm. was usually with, um, like, violence. Severe disease and yeah. violence. Oh, yeah. Interesting. The disease part is what I really worry about. Are the aliens sterile? Are they, you know, clean? Is the spaceship I mean, do clean? Do they have, right, do they have, I mean, is it, we can't even, don't, we don't, know, that we don't know how they'll physical oh, form. Here's the crossover you need, Robbie. Is this the real COVID origin no, story? I, I don't know. So. It came from an alien spacecraft, the UAP. They, I, they recovered biologics and it was, you know, I, they had COVID. I, yes, I'm sure the Proximal Origins people, <laughs> uh, the uh, Eco Health Alliance would love if that was the explanation. I don't think it came from right here. Planet Earth, more rising right after this. The Biden White House elevated two people to new roles in the administration in what is an apparent sign of not slowing down what critics say it's proxy war against Russia via Ukraine. 
Victoria Newland has been named acting deputy secretary of state, which makes her second in command at the State Department right under Antony Blinken. And the Senate Armed Services Committee has voted to confirm Biden's selection of Charles Q. Brown Jr. as the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He will be replacing Mark Milley. Now, a Senate vote will now will now happen on whether to confirm Brown, who is currently the Air Force Chief of Staff. According to an article from Responsible Statecraft, Newland's appointment will be a, quote, boon for Russia hawks who want to turn up the heat on the Kremlin, but for those who favor a negotiated end to the conflict in Ukraine, a promotion for the notoriously undiplomatic diplomat will be a bitter pill. During her time as Assistant Secretary of State in the Obama administration, she reportedly had a call with the United States ambassador to Ukraine, during which Newland expressed her support for putting Ukrainian Arseny Yatsunik into power, who would become the country's prime minister between 2014 and 2016. And looking at General Brown, earlier this month, he called for more United States bases in Asia and increased efforts to arm Taiwan, according to anti-war. Fantastic. Yeah, Victoria Newland is uh, very much a responsible figure for American foreign policy, with the exception of during the Trump years, um, for the last 20 years. So she uh, originally joined, uh, she was part of the Clinton administration all the way going back to the 90s. Mm -hmm. She was a top advisor then to Vice President Dick Cheney during the Iraq war, specifically on Iraq matters. Mm -hmm. um, she was then served under the Obama administration, um, doing, uh, you know, relations with NATO. Right. Specifically, then she was out of office during the Trump years. She, you know, she would surface every now and then to complain to the media that Trump was isolationist and we're, you know, withdrawing from the world stage and, you know, we're not bombing enough people. And uh, then she resurfaced and has joined the Biden administration. She was the one uh, infamously who said that, you know, of the uh, of the Nord Stream pipeline, you know, something was going to happen, which is part of the reason uh, a lot of people were convinced that the U.S. had something to do with the explosion, because she made it sound like we were going to do something along those lines. Um, this is a sign, and I, I know much less about uh, the other figure, uh, but of course, you know, more military bases everywhere. You know, this is just so, uh, I, so I think it's bad policy, obviously. I think it's also <laughs> out of step with the current political moment. I think most people, many, many people who are Republicans, who are Democrats, who are independents are, are sick of the foreign policy consensus of the last um, two decades and, and really want something different. Yeah, she comes from this cohort of very uh, career guys, is what yeah. they say, in the foreign policy establishment, where she's worked for many administrations, she's had dealings with NATO, she worked for sort of this post-Cold War era, if you can even call it that, you know, democracy mission, where rather than having the CIA directly involved in a lot of operations, you know, across the globe to influence elections in the direction of ensuring that people at the heads of state across the world are people that we favor, right? People that are either pro-USA or not anti-USA. So they funded dissident groups across the world. They've sowed discontent with regimes that we don't agree with. This kind of approach that, you know, the National Endowment for Democracy and groups that are similar takes is something that Victoria Newland has been in involved with pretty deeply. I would put her 
strongly in the camp of American intervention foreign policy. And that's really concerning, considering her involvement in NATO and her deep involvement advising on all Ukrainian foreign policy. It seems to me that the Biden administration is continuing that legacy of this kind of interventionist foreign policy exerting American mm -hmm. influence in the world rather than, you know, taking a step back and saying, let's assess how foreign policy has gone for us in the past half of a century. Maybe we should change how we approach some things. And I think, you know, this is kind of the legacy foreign policy continuing here. Right. It shows that it's not about it's not about party. Yeah. It's there is a a contingent of, as you said, career officials mm -hmm. who work for both parties in all sorts of administrations. The agenda continues. The the their agenda of a, of a neoconservative foreign policy where we have a more robust military presence everywhere, where we have more military bases, where we seek um, aggression and confrontation rather than di diplomacy, where we're always looking out for threats, where we're trying to contain Russia, China, et cetera, via means that I think actually make uh, the world a more dangerous place, that are reckless and that risk a larger conflagration, confrontation, that, but that is their, their ideology. That's what it was in the Middle East. And, and instead of the, the Middle East discrediting all these people, as you would have expected yeah. it to do after, you know, again, the, American, the judgment of the American people, most people intuitively understand that Iraq was a catastrophic mistake. It's insulting to even call it a mistake. It you know, mm -hmm. killed how, how many people, yeah. de you know, destabilized um, an entire country, uh, it turned the region over to increased terrorism and violence and disorder. Um, Afghanistan, a, stim a similar story. Uh, our intervention in Libya, producing horror after horror. Mm -hmm. But instead of discrediting these people, they, 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 they persist. They can't, be, they can't be gotten rid of. They're still, they still are in, are, are in you know, what, what, what Republicans now refer to as the deep state, the, 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 the policymaking arms of our federal government that, uh, that you know, someone like Donald Trump spoke out against, but then was unequal to the task of actually managing and reducing, which, uh, which is a huge frustration I have with him. I think the biggest security threat to the American people is not this idea that there are terrorists somewhere else. Uh, the biggest security threat to the American people is the direct actions of our State Department and career foreign affairs officials that decide to take this interventionist approach to foreign policy and meddle in the political affairs of other governments and influence elections in a direction that oftentimes destabilizes countries. We have sown terror groups through this action all across the globe. And so, you know, when I think about the United States funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan that then become the Taliban, it's, it's not hard to tell how these terror groups form. Us wreaking havoc all across the globe is how these terror groups form. And it's very undemocratic that so many people that make decisions of such consequence are not elected. And that's why this approach that I think Ramaswamy is taking by saying, here's a list of judges I would appoint. Mm. DeSantis by saying, you know what, I would consider appointing RFK Jr. to the role of you know, the FDA or CDC. I would like to see more people running for public office through the democratic process saying, this is who I would appoint to foreign policy establishment positions. I want a list of who you're appointing before I vote for you. Mm. Well, in response to the promotions, journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, Dick Cheney's top national security advisor for the Iraq war, uber neocon Victoria Newland, is always empowered no matter who is president, unless it's Trump when she has no role. Is it worth asking why Cheney's top advisor fits so well in the Obama and Biden State Department? I mean, I think that's you know basically exactly what we were 
what we were just saying is that it's not about party, it's the policy, and the policy doesn't really change. And then, again, I'm not trying to give Trump too much credit, because even though the policy did change, and he said, he, he said the right things, mm -hmm. but he didn't actually um, uh, rid the government of the people who have this view of policy that is totally antithetical to what the actual American people want. So if he returns to the White House or you know, some other Republican or independent iconoclastic thinker wants mm -hmm. to chart a different course. It's, it's like the American people, I think, are clearly on board with this vision, but then you have to actually do something about it. Yeah, I think if the American people knew the extent of the operations that Victoria Newland uh, was involved in, I think they would say, this is an unstable person who does dangerous things abroad. But because it's this polished foreign policy establishment official approach of like, this is what we do. We sow discontent in other countries by mm -hmm. funding adversaries, you know, funding the Arab Spring. That's something that the National Endowment for Democracy we know did. The stuff that is declassified that the deep state has done is far more interesting than anything we could possibly theorize and far more damning. The information's out there. It's in declassified CIA documents, but because it's this official protocol and it's, you know, the foreign policy establishment's way of always doing things, we don't think of these people as, you know, terrible international criminals like other people who look at the United States actions abroad and really see. I think we're lucky that other countries that we've done this in see this as the actions precisely of our foreign policy establishment and not a reflection of the beliefs of the American people. They could retaliate against us, but I think they realize that it's a small group of elites in our country and that the majority of the American public don't support these ideas. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said he would not choose 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as a running mate, but could be considered for other positions. Yes, the medical stuff, I'm very good on that. So that does appeal to me, but there's a whole host of other things that he'd probably be out of step with. And so on that regard, it's like, okay, if you're president, you know, sick him on the FDA if he'd be willing to serve or sick him on CDC. Uh, but in terms of being Veep, if there's, you know, 70% of the issues that he may be averse to our base on, you know, that just creates an issue. Hmm. Kind of bro talk there. Oh, sick him on the FDA, <laughs> sick him on the CDC, but maybe not for Veep. He's kind of using this, like, short campaign speak in interviews. And I think Ron DeSantis just has a generally hard time communicating with the public. But what do you make of this strategy of I'm going to appoint someone to my cabinet and promise that to the public to hopefully get some of the votes of people who like RFK Jr.? Yeah, DeSantis is having a bad week. Um, I guess we haven't really talked about it, but he had to let go of a bunch of his online-focused mm. staffers, including uh, someone that there was some indication, there are rumors, there was reporting from Semaphore that they were involved in the in the there, there were these two very weird pro DeSantis videos that were released by I think by DeSantis allies and it's not clear to what extent the campaign was involved. One was about like was going after Trump for not being for being too pro LGBT, right? And then the other used like explicit Nazi imagery in promotion yes. of DeSantis. They're real weird ads. I don't know what. Like, who is, who is coming into the DeSantis fold after mm. seeing this? So some weird stuff. 
I think similarly, honestly, and I, I know many of the viewers are big appreciators of RFK Jr. I like um, a lot of the things he has to say, especially on you know the free speech category. I, I appreciate his dissent on COVID. I agree with some of it. I disagree with other points of it. Um, Maybe they'll. Maybe some people, maybe including some people watching the show, will see this as a a, a good move from DeSantis to be, you know, open-minded about trying to include different and dissenting perspectives. Um, I personally, by, by you know, by saying he put them on FDA and CDC. Honestly, I think there's a there's a big difference even between those two roles because RFK Jr. You know, has like this long history of um, going against pharmaceutical companies, mm -hmm. energy companies, you know, for it, for environmental protection. It, you know, kind of wants more, um, you know, more testing on pharmaceutical companies, all those things. I personally, for my ideology, I don't want the FDA to make it harder for drug companies, energy companies, business companies to operate. I want more choice for the consumers. So, you know, one of my, my problems, obviously, with with uh, the CDC is that, you know, it was taking the COVID vaccine decision out of people's hands. That's what the uh, what the Biden administration did in general. So I, 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 may, I, I think I would have less of an issue with him involved in CDC because they're the advisory people. Mm -hmm. But the FDA actually has power to, like, again, stop you from being able to decide what you put in your body. So I'd, I'd want to hear more from him on, you know, on specifically what his views are there. Um, but I, I don't act, I don't, I don't want to make it harder for people to get dr drugs that they want to take. That's, you know, it should be your choice. It shouldn't mm -hmm. be mandated at all. And I appreciate that he's against mandates, but, um, he, you know, he has a long history of advocating for, you know, more penalties, liabilities, restrictions, regulations, et cetera, which is why he's running as a Democrat and not a Republican. <laughs> right. When DeSantis says, you know, uh, some of the medical stuff I'm, I'm good on, we assume that means vaccines, right? Yeah. Because RFK Jr. hasn't really spoken out about a lot of other things, has criticized, you know, the way that pharmaceuticals, you know, happen in our country, the way that you have so many people that are so high up on the FDA, having former positions mm -hmm. with large pharmaceutical companies, working for, you know, agricultural giants and corporate farming, obvious conflicts of interest there. That needs to be broken up. RFK Jr. has yeah. spoken about that quite a bit. I think that's a popular sentiment in the United States, that we're very sick of the fact that, you know, we eat the same food in this country, but someone goes on vacation in Europe, eats the same food, but because there's not preservatives and dangerous chemicals, they feel fine. Whereas if they eat it in the United States, they get bloated, they feel sick. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. are not happy with that. So I think Ron DeSantis might gain some points by saying, I like how RFK Jr. approaches this issue. The, the, the FDA is the thing standing in way of us enjoying Enjoying the things the Europeans enjoy, though, right? right. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. they're, they're like yeah. there are there are kinds of um, uh, what's the famous example? Sunblock. There's a great kind of sunblock that's available in Europe that's just never been approved by the by the FDA. It's approved by all the European health officials. It's approved by again, I think if it's if it's good enough for for the British, it's probably good, you know good enough. It's not some untested right. dangerous thing. But the FDA doesn't is is so get like um. um uh, allergy medicine and like cold medicine actually works in Europe. It doesn't work that well here. It actually works in Europe, but it's never mm -hmm. been approved here in the FDA. It's too costly for, and, and, and part of the reason is and it's too expensive for drug companies to try to get it past the FDA's testing and approval standards. Um, like there's this artificial monopoly that's totally the fault 
of the U.S. government. So I want to I want to streamline that process. I want to get the FDA out of the way. Now, maybe RFK Jr. is on board with some of those things. We've asked him a little bit about this when he's been on the show. Uh, my colleagues at Reason Magazine also interviewed him, and it, it, it was a pretty tough interview. And he, I remember him saying, well, he said he doesn't want to make it easier, I think, for drug companies to be, for drugs to be approved. I think that was a direct quote. But then he did say he doesn't want to make it harder. And he also thinks people should be able to, you know, who are in a precarious medical situation, mm -hmm. the, the kind of the right to choose movement yeah. where, you know, you're saying, I, I, I'm willing to try some experimental thing because, and, I, and I'll, you know, damn whatever the effects are, but I, I need to, you know, I'm, I'm, I might be in a very precarious medical situation at, even at the end of my life, and I'm willing to try something. He yeah. sounded on board with that, which I think is really good. Um, anyway, I have a lot of questions still. Yeah, I think the corruption within the FDA uh, is, it goes in both directions, right? Yeah. So you have these products that are, you know, used in Europe that work quite well. A lot of, you know, natural remedies that we have in the United States that the FDA requires them label, you know, this has not been reviewed or approved mm -hmm. by the FDA, when yeah. there's a lot of alternative medicine that could be quite useful and is useful in other countries. But you have this problem of, you know, under-regulation and over-regulation in that sense, right? They're saying, we're not going to approve these drugs that are used in other places that are fine for you, but you also have a lot of dangerous chemicals and red dye and yellow dye in our foods and all kinds of preservatives that are banned in Europe that increase their quality of food when it comes to things like bread and cheese, produce and fresh, fresh products. Uh, we don't have those here that are of the same quality because we have the under-regulation problem where they're allowing large corporations to mass produce food and produce food with a lot of preservatives so that they have a longer shelf life, they can sell more products and not, you know, have that loss when they have to get rid of those foods. So, Well, meanwhile, journalist Aaron Mate hit out at Kennedy for his support of Israel, tweeting that RFK Jr. is cavorting with bigots to support an apartheid government. Even putting aside basic human decency politically it makes no sense. Israel lobby will never back him. They have both parties already uh, being pro-apartheid is a loser with the Dem base. Um, especially youth. Um, you know, you're more plugged into disputes on the left than I am. Is this some kind of deal breaker, you think, his, his views on Israel? Brianna grilled him very stridently uh, yeah. last time when we interviewed him on that subject. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. We don't have a, a unified left when it comes to the issue of, of Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's you don't extremely have a unified fragile. left when it comes to anything, as far as I can tell. Spectating. <laughs> there, there are your, a few uh, things we've got, Rob. <laughs> no, but no it's, offense. <laughs> Israel's especially a, a contentious issue because you have people who call themselves progressives who say, you know, uh, if you support any kind of, you know, you know, Palestinian resistance, you're an anti-Semite. Mm. That's that's a really difficult position to take. I think we can have some nuance with the issue of Israel, but we don't teach a lot about foreign policy in public schools. And so it, it's not an issue that a lot of people can make an, an informed decision on, unfortunately. A lot of people don't take the time to research, you know, the history there and what's actually going on. And I think that's the chief problem there. I think if a lot of people really looked into the issue of Israel-Palestine historically, analyzed the issue from both perspectives that are out there, they would probably be quite critical of the Netanyahu regime and quite critical of, you know, the land grabbing on behalf of Israel and Palestine. And so I don't think this is going to be the main issue that takes RFK Jr. down, because we even have very progressive members of Congress like Jamal Bowman, who have gone back and forth on either side of this issue and still maintain their support and their seat in Congress. Mm. All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this.
Well, a dramatic day of ups and downs in a federal Delaware court ended yesterday when Hunter Biden pled not guilty to tax and gun charges. Biden's plea deal fell apart after the, pres the, the presiding judge called out a provision of that deal that would have given Hunter Biden blanket immunity from future prosecution in other investigations. According to reporting from The New York Times, Judge Mary Ellen Norieka repeatedly, at times angrily, said she felt like she was being asked to rubber stamp an agreement she had serious concerns about. Also from The Times, quote, from the start, the judge seemed highly skeptical of the unusual deal, which offered Hunter Biden broad immunity from prosecution in perpetuity, questioning why it had been filed under a provision that gave her no legal authority to reject it. When she asked Leo Wise, a prosecutor, if there was any precedent for the kind of deal being proposed, he replied, no, Your Honor. ABC News has more from inside the courtroom. Let's watch. There was a huddle between the parties, and they are trying to forge some kind of deal that the judge will like uh, and that both parties can agree to. It may not be the same deal exactly that they came into court with, but they're trying to salvage uh, what the judge feels, uh, it, it seems, was a deal that was you know, just a little bit too subtle uh, for her and one that mixed apples and oranges in a way that she believes was not fair to Hunter Biden. Uh, because at one point the judge asked the prosecutors, is there still an ongoing investigation? They said yes. She said, well, how can he plead guilty to part of an investigation when it's still ongoing? All of that. Yeah, so the judge raising some very, very uh, obvious questions, I think. You know, the more the details of this deal comes out, the more the Republican uh, critique of it seems very apt. It's, it looks like they were trying to forgive um, Hunter Biden for potential criminal wrongdoing that they had not finished investigating. If it, that if it later, you know, was revealed that some of this potential influence peddling, other other tax issues uh, were more serious and merited criminal charges that they were already going to be included under this deal, which is unprecedented, as the judge points out. You know, it's, it's all well and good to, um, you know, give him a, a slap on the wrist for these, um, again, for things that, like, I don't—I I support gun rights. I, I want drugs to be legal. You know, some of this mm -hmm. stuff seemed pretty minor. It, now, while still being true that someone in Hunter Biden who had done the things Hunter Biden had, had done would have the book absolutely thrown at them, but because, right. you know, he's a well-connected, he's a political scion, he's the president's son, he gets what looks like a much more lenient treatment. That aside, I, I mean, this, this is whatever, but it almost seems like it was a pretext for excusing yeah. a potential more important criminal matter that might have involved, might, maybe, it's been alleged, not proven at all, but maybe Joe Biden himself. Yes. What a wild situation in the courtroom there. The judge trying to have some kind of control over what's happening, but seemingly having none, one where the, the a deal where the judge would have no legal authority to intervene is quite insane. Also, imagine being someone in, the, in a jury in a case like this, a judge in the case like this, an observer or a member of the public where it's like, okay, Hunter Biden was going to plea guilty. So either he is guilty for the thing he was granted, you know, impunity for essentially, you know, he probably did have the gun at a time when he was on drugs, uh, that felony charge that he thought he wouldn't get prosecuted for as a part of this deal, or he's guilty of the tax fraud. It's one or the other, right? If you're about to enter into a plea deal, it's because you're guilty of something. So for him to then be like, 
well, if you don't take the deal in that case, not guilty, <laughs> it, it kind of makes a joke of our judicial system. It reminds system. me of this ridiculous plot line in, I believe, the second season of 24. Did you ever watch 24? No. You're too young for that. Uh, Jack Bauer <laughs> is uh, is being held prisoner yeah. by one of his recurring antagonists at that time. And uh, th this woman uh, has information to trade to our government, yeah. but she also wants to kill Jack Bauer. So mm -hmm. they give her an immunity deal that they're not going to prosecute her for any of her Mm -hmm. prior crimes in exchange for her information. And she says, that's not good enough. I want an Im I want immunity for future crimes I'm about mm -hmm. to commit. And they're like, what crime? She's like, well, I'm about to kill Jack Bauer. I want immunity for this crime, which I'm about to do. And it, it, like that, it, this yeah. is kind of what they're, what they're gesturing at. It's very, it's very ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's a, a ridiculous situation. And I think that if anyone else, as you pointed out, was they had a gun in their house or, and they were on drugs and they had this felony charge, they would be prosecuted heavily, more swiftly. And I think that speaks to our judicial system. Why is it that in both cases, the case of Hunter Biden, uh, it's more easy for us to get him on this charge of, you know, gun possession while you're on drugs. With Donald Trump, why is it more easy to prosecute Donald Trump for, you know, hush money to a sex worker than it is for any of his other litany of political and financial crimes? And it's because the system is simply not designed to prosecute financial crimes or political crimes. And also, he, he, neither he nor... <laughs> Haley Biden, his, uh, who he was right. dating at the time, his brother's widow, uh, it does sound like they disposed of the gun improperly. It got mm -hmm. just like thrown in a dumpster near a school is what the reporting has suggested, which is, that is um, a violation of the law. Again, nobody's, yeah. again, nobody's come down on her or him for that. Just to reiterate, I support the Second Amendment. I don't, I don't have any, and I don't want to, you know, prosecute Hunter for his drug issues and addictions. I think that's, you know, that's a matter, that's a health issue. Uh, as long as he's not hurting anybody else, fine. But it, it seems like that's been the focus, both because it's lurid and it's, you know, it has a mm -hmm. sexual component. There's the images, it's graphic. Uh, but that that has been the distraction. Every, you know, everybody's talking about, is this alien stuff a psyop? They're trying to distract right. you from the real thing. And that can be annoying, because everything's trying to distract you from something. Like, mm -hmm. we can all be focused on multiple things at once. But in this case, it does feel like all that stuff, yeah. the, the, the gun stuff, the drug stuff, is, is, is somewhat of a distraction potentially from more serious foreign influence. And I think anyone that's been following the case closely, even if you, you haven't been following it closely, very easy to be confused. But even if you have been following it closely, it's easy to be confused at what's going down here because it was my understanding, and I think a lot of people following this is understanding, that the deal was there's not going to be prosecution for the felony gun charge in exchange for the IRS situation. It seems to me that behind closed doors, that was not the deal, that there was a further agreement of no prosecution beyond just that charge, and that's why things fell apart because that is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And the judge apparently feels the same way and was just as confused. Well, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked to comment on yesterday's court proceedings. Let's watch. Hunter Biden is a private citizen, and this was a personal matter for him. As we have said, the president, the first lady, they love their son, and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. This case was handled independently, as all of you know, by the Justice Department under the leadership of a prosecutor appointed by the former president, President Trump. So for anything further, 
as you know, and we've been very consistent from here, I'd refer you to the Department of Justice and to Hunter's representatives, uh, who is his legal team, obviously, who can address any of your questions. I suspect that is not the last question she will field on this subject. More rising in just a minute. trying to control what we can and cannot say. I think Robbie has something to tell us about that. What's on your radar, Robbie? I do, Jessica. Well, exactly one week ago, Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. appeared before the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. And I wanted to take this opportunity to revisit the matter because I still don't think the mainstream media has properly reckoned with the truth of just how badly they misconstrued RFK Jr.'s controversial comments, a lie that they and their Democratic allies used to delegitimize his testimony. Now, as you may recall, the Republican majority invited Kennedy to testify about the government's campaign to suppress contrarian speech on COVID-19, vaccines, and the virus's origins. A tweet from RFK Jr. expressing doubts about vaccines had been among the first posts that the White House urged Twitter to restrict after President Joe Biden took office in January 2021. Before Kennedy could even read his opening statement at the hearing, Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz attempted to move the panel to executive session, which would have effectively blocked the public from hearing what the witness had to say. When Republicans called for a vote to table the motion, all the Democratic members of the subcommittee voted no. In short, at a hearing intended to probe bureaucrats and politicians' well-documented efforts to crack down on disfavored speech, Democrats played exactly to type. Their first impulse was not merely to disagree with Kennedy's views, but to stop him from uttering them in public. Their stated objection to Kennedy was a comment he had made claiming that COVID-19 may have been ethnically targeted, remarks that were widely seen as anti-Semitic. Delegate Stacey Plaskett of the Virgin Islands said that by inviting RFK Jr. to testify, Republicans, quote, intentionally chose to elevate this rhetoric to give these harmful, dangerous views a platform in the halls of the United States Congress. While Plaskett did not merely criticize Kennedy's comments, she implied that they were not protected by the First Amendment. Quote, free speech is not an absolute, she said at the beginning of the hearing. The Supreme Court has stated that. Hmm. Now, the New York Times, in its recap of the hearing, echoed these concerns, writing, quote, Despite the theater, the hearing raised thorny questions about free speech in a democratic society. Is misinformation protected by the First Amendment? When is it appropriate for the federal government to seek to tamp down the spread of falsehoods? End quote. Those are not, those are not thorny questions. They're not even questions. Of course misinformation is protected by the First Amendment, unless it veers into defamation or fraud, which are both narrowly defined legal categories. The modern Supreme Court has never ever validated the idea that speech expressing incorrect ideas is unprotected by the Constitution. If it had, the Times' own speech right now would be in jeopardy. Indeed, the New York Times' own story about Kennedy's controversial remarks itself contained misinformation. Its opening paragraph described the comments in question as, quote, this is important, this is a quote from the New York Times, a conspiracy-filled rant by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that the COVID-19 virus was engineered to spare Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people, end quote. Well, the candidate did not, in fact, straightforwardly declare that COVID-19 was, quote, engineered to spare Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people. He didn't say that. What he did say was this. There is an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races disproportionately. 
He also said COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. And he said, we don't know whether it was deliberately targeted or not, but there are papers out there that show the racial or ethnic differential and impact. Now, you can see why someone would raise an eyebrow at the suggestion that the virus even might have been deliberately targeted, but a reporter should report what the candidate actually said. Now, Kennedy, for what it's worth, seems to have been referring to a study by the Cleveland Clinic that found some evidence the virus's genetic makeup could theoretically make certain populations, including the Amish and Ashkenazi Jews, less receptive to it. Now, sometimes scientists have disagreed with those underlying findings. That's fine. And moreover, the disproportionate impacts of COVID-19, I think, are likely best explained by certain populations' overall health, age, access to medical resources. Kennedy's larger point was the government funding of research that creates such viruses is dangerous. In an interview on Rising, the candidate claimed that it never entered my mind that it was engineered directly to protect Jews and injure other people. Unfortunately, the Democrats' behavior at the hearing is part of a pattern. Far too many political leaders have urged greater censorship of contrarian COVID speech, especially online. The vast federal bureaucracy, first under Donald Trump and then in a greatly expanded fashion under Joe Biden, pushed private tech companies to censor speech that was critical of the government's approach to the pandemic. Both the Twitter files and my own Facebook files show that the White House, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, other arms of the federal government, frequently contacted content moderators for the purpose of jawboning. These pushes for greater content moderation were not just philosophically wrong, that is, at odds with principles of free speech, they were often wrong about the underlying facts as well. One need not co-sign everything RFK Jr. has ever said about the virus or vaccines to admit that the mainstream purveyors of pandemic-related information made grave errors of scientific judgment. For instance, again, the New York Times lead coronavirus reporter Apoorva Mandavilli said the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origins was a, quote, racist falsehood, and she was in good company. The established media's persistent crusade to demonize lab leak dissenters, other than a tiny number of cautiously dissenting voices, did not end until earlier this year, after multiple federal agencies finally concluded that a lab leak was more likely than natural spillover. If leading Democratic politicians, government health experts, and mainstream media reporters engaged in some self-reflection about their own role in pandemic-era authoritarianism, they might better understand the appeal of a candidate who is running on an explicit platform of never repeating those mistakes. So I know we've talked about this a couple times on the show, but I just wanted to revisit it one last time. I was reading again the New York Times in particular, their mm. coverage of the hearing, and again, they, they claimed, they attributed him to, him to him a quote that he did not say, and that he has further clarified on this show and elsewhere, that he was not saying he thinks COVID was deliberately engineered to ethnically affect people differently. We don't even know that it was deliberately engineered. He's saying that the fact that it, that, that some scientists and some scientific evidence supports the idea that it ha is having a differential impact, that that could be because of the virus's structure. There could be other reasons for it, too. But if it is because of the virus's structure, that shows you that you could theoretically make a virus that does that. And that's very bad. And we should be very worried about funding such things. And we should be worried about China doing it, or Russia, or the US, or anyone else. To me, that is a perfectly acceptable general warning against this kind of thing. But they made it sound almost as if it was an endorsement. Uh, that, that he was endorsing doing that or that he thought it was, you know, a nefarious thing that Jewish people were doing or something. 
The way the media intentionally takes RFK Jr. out of context and makes the case these ideas are dangerous, almost in line with their argument for government censorship, yes. right? RFK Jr.'s testimony on the floor of Congress, how members of Congress were outraged by what RFK Jr. had to say about censorship, how the media, the establishment media, backed up the members of Congress saying, we absolutely need the government to censor such dangerous ideas. They're disproving their own argument by being mad and outraged at JFK. So we have members of government that want to censor speech because people are saying dangerous things. They don't like RFK Jr.'s views. But RFK Jr. has the highest favorability rating among anyone running for public office, so he could very well get elected to public office and become the government. So they agree that because we can elect people to public office that might not have a sensible idea of what views and perspectives are, are safe and good and which are dangerous, perhaps it should not then be the government's job of censoring information because people like RFK Jr could be elected to public office and do it in a direction that you might not like. It's this classic case of, you know, what I think our founders warned us about in the Federalist Papers, where they talked about liberty being, you know, a, a necessary thing. Faction is the result of us having liberty. And if we are to get rid of these kinds of factions, these people we disagree with, we are to get rid of freedom. Right. And, and, and liberty of speech, freedom of speech being the very first right that they enshrined, mm -hmm. that our, our founders uh, understood the paramount importance of that. And it has been reaffirmed over and over again. Uh, our Supreme Court, uh, you know, you, you can have different views of today's Supreme Court, but I think something all of us libertarians, leftists can agree on and appreciate is that we, we have more, from a legal standpoint, at least on paper, an ironclad protection of free speech rights, but they're being chipped at, chipped away at, not even by our legislators, but by these federal bureaucrats and then their allies in the mainstream media who, who are, you know, who are reinforcing the things the bureaucrats want done and want said in order to, to provide a pretext or to come out with this idea that misinformation is not protected by the First Amendment. Of course it is. They've never said that it's not because we don't know what the truth is and we have to hear different ideas and thoughts and viewpoints and argue about what's the truth. Sometimes people are really insistent, but they're wrong. Sometimes other people are wrong. Like we, we, it's a collaborative process at arriving mm -hmm. at the truth. It was just as easy as, you know, um, uh, bowing down to the most informed or most central authority, um, then you wouldn't need it. But those authorities are, are fallible too. It's yeah. not God. It's just people. It seems that the anyone on the left who is in favor of this kind of censorship on behalf of the government should remember back. I mean, I think a lot of folks were not alive or uh, politically cognizant during the McCarthy era when it was the government's explicit mission to censor leftist ideas. We should all be very wary of government censorship. That was not so long ago. And so I think forgetting how this could be used against leftists and that Cold War era politics of just quelling any, you know, art, literature, anyone expressing ideas uh, that were leftists were people who were fair game to be persecuted by the U.S. government, to be silenced and to be censured. That wasn't so long ago. So this approach to RFK Jr., that's aggressive. You don't have to like what he says, uh, but to be in favor of government censorship because you don't like what one candidate says is a, a really extreme way that they're coaxing people with fear uh, to take away some of their liberties, to be quite honest, which sounds like something you would say, Robbie. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay with us.
favorite podcaster, Joe Rogan, thinks critics of Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town are hypocrites. Let's watch. People are upset at the Country Music Channel. You know, oh, because they, yeah, yeah. the Jason Aldean yeah, song, Jason Try That song. in a Small yeah. Town. Yeah. The level of outrage. Like, now, I'm not saying that that's the greatest song the world's ever known, you know? But the level of outrage coming from people that are upset about that song is so strange when there are hundreds of rap songs out there yeah. that are infinitely worse and also enjoyable. Misogynistic, and, uh, yeah, uh -huh. prolifying mm -hmm. violence, the whole oh, yeah. thing. Yeah. And no, no complaints at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're not even talking about old stuff. There's new stuff too. There's 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 hip hop. There's wild rock songs. There's a lot of wild shit, and to be focusing on that one, and it it's the racial aspect of it, it was crazy because like the real Antifa problems that were happening during the BLM, I think it was a lot of white people doing that, right. wasn't it? It was yeah. a lot of like yeah. lost liberal whites who are very angry who decided to take up this movement and smash things. So, like, the racial aspect of it, there's nothing racial about the lyrics. People are upset. A lot of wisdom from Joe Rogan there. Um, and, and he, you know, he's not trying to make, like, the old fogey criticism that, oh, these rap lyrics are just too, oh, my kid's hearing for that. He's like, no, stop. But he wasn't saying that. He was just saying it's a little bit of a double standard to be really mad about this song. If, if viewers recall, this Jason Aldean song, Try That in a Small Town, has some lyrics about how, you know, you, I mean, some, honestly, questionable in terms of their yeah. being right on the policy about how you can't get away with doing crime or s stuff in small towns. Uh, many small towns have high crime rates as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not, it, it, that's not, now many cities have also have high crime rates and some places are getting worse than others. But uh, to call out that double standard, I think is fair. And also he's totally right that the Antifa people were all white people. So I hope we're all agreed on that. I think what's interesting about this is I, I don't know that Jason Aldean is the one that should take the fall. I think there were a lot of decisions made by the label. Uh, oftentimes, labels make decisions to stir up controversy because that does drive streams of the music video. Mm -hmm. And I think Jason Aldean could have written this song and been like, yeah, you know, I'm denouncing violence against people. This feels right for me. I don't credit Jason Aldean as being fully aware of every political message in the music video and even in the lyrics and the extent of how they might be interpreted. The site of the music video being the same site of the 1946 Columbia race riot, I don't even think Jason Aldean knew that, if I'm being honest with you. I think the label might have known that. I think the label might have seen that Jason Aldean's music isn't doing as well as it once was, and this could be something that could bring attention to him in a similar way to Morgan Wallen's recent controversies brought a lot of attention to his music and actually increased his streams. It could have been a decision they made purely from the business perspective, which goes to show how much labels have control over their musicians in a way where the musicians don't really have control uh, over the message that their music ultimately puts out. That's a, that's a big problem when it comes to people's you know, ability to control their art and how much they depend on a label to get their music out and produce their music when you know, they might like to have more control about how their creative you know, expression is portrayed. I think it's possible Jason Aldean could have just meant this as, you know, don't be violent, and it's kind of the label's fault that that imagery mm -hmm. was overlaid and the sight of it was at the Columbia race riot, and maybe they encouraged some of the lyrics in the song about, you know, try it in a small town spitting in a cop's face and lighting up the flag, et cetera. That doesn't sound like something Jason Aldean would write, 
to be honest. Well, and just to be clear, setting the flag on fire is First Amendment protected activity. So if you <laughs> want to be all rah-rah patriot, rah-rah free speech, free expression, you don't have to like that, but that is explicitly protected by the First Amendment in, in that there was a Supreme Court case where they said you can do that action. Right. But did the Constitution say, you know, it's it's protected free speech unless you are in a small town, Robbie? Right. No, right. it didn't. It, even, even in a small town. Um, I'm not a big fan of the song. Personally, I'm not a big fan of country music. That's probably not super surprising to our viewers right. who are, if they're uh, coming to understand my tastes. Um, but the reason we're talking about this is that CMT, Country Music Television, mm -hmm. took action against this song in a, in a way that they, they never would have, I mean, it's against a country station, but a, a, a station would not have taken action against a rap song with much, much more uh, evocative of violence or, or, or gangs or something like that, um, is the argument conservatives are making. And that Joe Rogan was talking about there. Yeah, I feel like just gang violence and making a statement about protests against police violence are just, like, incomparable issues. It's very apples and oranges to me to compare those so? two things. Yeah, absolutely. Because think about you know, the genesis of gangs in America. Okay. You had chattel slavery in the United States. You had a lot of African Americans, you know, denied uh, integration into the formal economy in the U.S. A lot of them became sharecroppers. They essentially had to, to sell their lives in a similar way, whereas instead of just them being slaves forced to do the labor, they basically had no other economic opportunity. And so they said, okay, I'll work on this farm doing very similar labor to my grandparents and parents did who were slaves. And then, you know, many of them didn't get protection from the police because the police was an institution that came out of slave patrols. And there wasn't a lot of options for a lot of folks. And forming gangs for not only the protection of themselves, their family, and their neighborhoods, but also to have economic opportunity because they were rejected from joining the formal economy. I mean, you can blame the state for that circumstance. And so the mm -hmm. police continually brutalizing black Americans and then resulting or, or taking the, the action of, of rioting, which Martin Luther King Jr. said is, is the voice of the unheard or the message of the unheard after so many years of police brutality, Jim Crow, new imaginations and iterations of Jim Crow that we still see today, gerrymandering districts. We just had the Supreme Court hear a case about this. The continual uh, you know, murder of unarmed black men and, and the result being riots. To say that that violence uh, is the is the same as the gang violence is just not seeing the continuity of history there, uh, and so I don't I don't think that's a comparison. Well, but okay, that but be gang made. violence today is just I mean it's just crime, it's just theft and crime and murder. I mean you're, you're right that at a time, and I by no means am claiming the police today are perfect. Far from it. I have a lot of criticisms of historical and modern policing um, in this country, and I, I take your point that. You know, even in uh, immigrant communities, right? There's uh, Irish gangs, Italian gangs, the mafia was mm -hmm. providing protection to people in those communities that were, you know, overlooked and were not considered American and were not being, you know, protected by, by the by the police. So I, I hear that um, today. I don't. I mean, today gangs in cities are are <laughs> are you know responsible for an inordinate amount of violent crime and theft and assault and clashes with police and, and are not, I don't think, are not desired by the people in those communities at all. What I think about this song specifically, 
when I think about the reaction to it, it's not a song people want to listen to. I, it doesn't have a lot of streams because people are bumping it in their car like, yeah. Well, like, I don't know. People, I yeah, don't yuck their yum. People might not, not you or I, but there might be people who are. Clearly think, there are. I think they're streaming think it because of the blowback? controversy. I think they're streaming it because they think it sends a no. political message. I think they're streaming it to observe and partake in the drama of it all. I don't think they're streaming it because it's good music. I don't think hearing no. those lyrics genuinely makes people like, yeah. I don't think people like to think about politics in that sense when they're listening to country music and the divisions among people in our country. Country music used to be a lot of folk music, a lot of fighting the man, not defending the actions of the man and the people who protest against the man. So I think a lot has changed. Hmm. And I think this is a political stunt uh, to get more views by his label. Fair enough. Well, yes. tomorrow on Rising, uh, Jessica will be here. I will not. Amber Athey will be taking my place for Rising Fridays, and they will be delivering all the news that there is going on. But this has been a really fun week. Thank you for filling in for Brianna. I've enjoyed a, a week of Robinheimer. <laughs> it's been good. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Brianna will be back uh, next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And we will see you later. Bye-bye.